I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive writing pen.edu/pensound. Today I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Sophia Lafraga, poet and visual artist, author of Literally Dead 2015, I Don't Want Anything to Do with the Internet 2012, the anti-play trilogy of iOS adaptations Waiting, The Bald Soprano, and Underground Lovers, whose other titles in Berlin, Germany was her second solo show who's poetry editor of Imperial Matters, curator of the experimental reading series Segway, and teacher of poetry at BHQFU, New York's freest art school. And by Simone White, a Brooklyn-based poet who was raised here in Philadelphia, author of House Envy of All the World 2010, and several chapbooks among them Unrest of 2013, who is currently program director at the Poetry Project, whose new book is called Of Being Dispersed, coming soon from Future Poem, which I've had the privilege of reading, and I'm happy to say am dazzled by, Simone. And by Andrew Whiteman, songwriter, lyricist, guitarist, longtime friend and supporter of avant-garde poets and poetry venues in Canada, whose very well-known bands have included Apostle of Hustle and Broken Social Scene, and more recently the band Aurora, which released the EP In the Pines in 2013, a musical setting for the poetry of Alice Notley. A brilliant set, which Andrew and Ariel Engel performed here at the Writer's House a few years ago, and who I'm thrilled to say is a longtime listener and fan of Poem Talk, this very podcast series, and an avid participant in ModPo, a free, open, non-credit, 10-week course we at the Writer's House have offered each fall for five years. Simone and Sophia, thank you for coming to Philly from New York. Our pleasure, or at least mine. (laughs) Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. And I think for you, Simone, your first time at the Writer's House ever? Ever. And maybe you too. You used to hang in Philly, but you didn't stop by the Writer's House. I'm feeling very sad about that in retrospect. It was a first time for everything. Yes. And Simone, um, welcome home to Philly. Thanks. Your neighborhood is your... Mount Airy. Mount Airy. East side, that's Fantastic. right. Mm-hmm. And Andrew, it's a great pleasure that you traveled here to be with us from Canada. My pleasure, Al. And I want to thank you for helping us with Penn Sound. You gave us uh, the Victor Coleman recordings, right? I did. I did. More to come. More to come? Great. Yeah. We're here today to talk about a poem by Edward Dorn. It's called The Sundering UP Tracks. UP means Union Pacific Railroad. Sundering UP Tracks, and it appears as the last poem in the 1967 series going under the title The North Atlantic Turbine. Our recording of the poem is part of Dorn's vast pen sound page, but unfortunately it's undated, the recording is, and we don't know who made it or where. Uh, Both of the other poems Dorn read on this reel are from the same collection, the North Atlantic Turbine. And we're going to guess that the recording is contemporaneous with what would have been then new work, and so let's just say the late 60s. If any listener to Pump Talk knows the provenance of this recording, please let us know. So here now is Ed Dorn reading The Sundering U.P. Tracks. The next poem is called 
the sundering UP tracks. I never hear the Supremes, but what I remember Leroy. McLucas came to Pocatello the summer of 1965. One dark night he was there in a brilliant white shirt. One dark evening the UP brought him the most widely luminous and incorial smile I ever saw. He had taken rooms with the Reverend Buchanan over in that part of town owned by Beistlein, the famous exploiter. I was hurt to discover he had come to what I thought was my town in my fair country three days before. I had thought he would stay with me. How many thousand years too late now is that desire? How long will the urge to be remain? Every little bogus town on the Union Pacific bears the, the scar of an expert linear division. The rustic spades at the Jim Dandy Club took his money like the sea wind lifts feathers of a gull. Compared to the majestic legal thievery of Commodore Vanderbilt, men like Jay Gould and Jim Fisk were second-story workers. Each side of the shining double knife, from Chicago to Frisco to Denver, the Cheyenne Cutoff, the right-of-way they called it, and it still runs that way, right through the heart. The Union Pacific Rails run also to Portland, even through the heart of the Blue Beach, as hard as it is. 2,000 miles or so, each hamlet, the winter sanctuary of the rail rare jailbird and the Ishmaelite, the esoteric summer firebombs of Chicago, the same scar tissue I saw in Pocatello made by the rapacious geoeconomic surgery of Harriman, the old isolator, that ambassador at large. You talk of color, O oh, cosmological America, how well and with what geometry you teach your citizens. So there's some kind of situation or a story, something's happening, uh, somebody's come to town, and, um, and what is that? Can we can we start with us? Say say something about it just to start us off, Sophia. Well, I guess um, right. So someone someone's come to town. Who the speaker is hurt isn't staying with him. Right. He's been in town for a few days, and only then does the speaker discover that he's staying somewhere else. And he's named Andrew. Yeah, Leroy McLucas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's a photographer. Mm -hmm. And he came to shoot uh, a book about the Shoshone Indians. Um, and Ed was going to sort of tag along with him while he took pictures in that area around Pocatello and Idaho and Montana. So they were going to make a book together, basically. And so he'd arrived in town, Simone, but the speaker, or Dorn, is hurt, is the word, which is difficult or troubling word in some ways. He, he was hurt that McLucas was not staying near him or couldn't stay with him. Right. Do you want to say more about that? I have, I'm speculating about the nature of why Leroy McLucas didn't, do you know the answer to this question, I wonder? No, I it's don't. Okay. The story. Yeah. So, yeah. so the story is that Leroy McLucas, who's the co-author of the Shoshanians, it ends up, that's the case, um, 
isn't staying with him maybe because he's black. Yeah, and in fact, Leroy McLucas was right, African American and black. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the opening in which the white shirt appears, in which the widely luminous smile appears, is also a kind of invocation of this person's blackness and the reason for the sort of submerged hurt. And then that sort of color rift becomes the poem. And there's something specific that Dorn, who thought lots about the West, the U.S. West, um, identifies as having split these towns, not just Pocatello. And Andrew, do we want to just say what that is? Well, sure. The metaphor is the train, the, the railway system and how it was built. He, he goes right to the source of how it was built and, you know, contrasts, you know, the money and the power that built the American uh, railway system. And he sort of compares it to, you know, when, when he says um, the rustic spades at the Jim Dandy Club took his money like sea winds lift the feathers of a gull. And it's interesting that that little moment is right above his, his uh, quote from, I guess, Daniel Drew's book about the robber barons or so early we've capitalists. Got, we've got railroad barons who are creating the Union Pacific and... We've got towns of which Dorn should already have been familiar, or presumably he was, but this is the story that makes him think about what it means to be on the wrong side of the tracks. So um, McLucas has come to town, and it's a, essentially a segregated town. And the, and the railroad in most of these towns actually created two sides of town. So, Sophia, what are we going to do with I was hurt to discover... Um, and then there's this turn, which is a little more dramatic, I think, than it needs to be. Sorry to opine. How many thousands of years too, too late now is that desire? You want to say something about any of that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The speaker kind of bugs me out a little bit in this poem. So I feel like I've had kind of trouble, like, get going full in or something. Because, um, I mean, he's hurt, but he's also, like, kind of has kind of this air about him that's, like, very, like, oh, like, like thousands of years, like, late to this, like, desire. And what is that desire? That he would stay with him or that everything would be kind of cool between the everyone? The desire that... That nothing would be sundered or... Simone? Um, yeah, I mean, before he even gets to being hurt, he says that it's the summer of 1965. So, I mean, that seems to me to be a significant fact. He's not quite as dopey as he appears to be. Like he, he He's not he, dopey. Yeah. So he's, he's not dopey. The the idea that it's the summer of 1965 and also it seems to me that he stops at Leroy, so he's it's, you know, Leroy, but he knows another Leroy. And in 1965, <laughs> there's also the Berkeley Poetry Conference is about to... I mean, there's a, an explosion in 1965. Malcolm X has been assassinated. He knows what's going on. And, and I don't think that his, like, his... I was so hurt to discover. Maybe he was hurt, but um, he's also well aware of the political situation in the United States in 1965 and is not surprised in any way by the segregation in this town. Can I jump in? Yeah. Because you just, you just yeah, you tweaked me on something, which is, I can't believe I, I didn't get it. But yeah, he knows another Leroy. But that makes sense about the thousand years too late. He's talking about 
his gray friend. Could be. It could be, you know, and, and because he stopped. You're right. There's a, there's a period right there. And that's not how Le- Leroy Jones spelled his name. But still, like, Amiri Baraka was supposed to go to that, to the Berkeley conference. And he did not go because that's when he decided that, you know, fuck this. I, I'm not going to participate in this anymore. I'm going uptown. I'm going to start the Black Arts Repertory Theater. I'm going to go on my new path now. And he sent Dorn in his stead. So, and Dorn's uh, speech that he gave at the conference was about the work that he did with McLucas. And what's so interesting is that there is this kind of, the poem displaces all of that agony from that summer onto this segregation of Pocatello. And so what seems to be a kind of easy, like every time I hear the Supremes, this is probably not going to end well, right? (laughs) Every time I hear the Supremes, I think about, but the summer of 65, we said, has this, has this really important context of splitting and we haven't gotten to the second half of the poem yet and we will get there but there's some giant analogies being made politically not to the politics of poetry but to the firebombing of Chicago uh, which could be a reference to things later in the 60s when he's writing this poem a little later but it could also be about about the mid-60s and the geoeconomics of Harriman father, son. We'll get there in a minute. But let's go back to Pocatello. Can um, we ask Sophia again about the thousand, the, the thousand years too yes, late? Yes, thank you. So what do you think now? I mean, I think I see now that um, I see kind of what he's doing with his, with his diction. And I guess, yeah, no, I mean, that was, that was all very kind of enlightening what you said. And and what Andrew was saying about kind of his style. I mean, I had caught that bit with with Leroy and kind of had to to do some googling to see if he was talking about Barack Thank or God who for he was Google. talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Google is necessary um, for this poem in so many other ways. <laughs> no, That's totally. Right. I don't think I googled enough. Now that I'm seeing your notes, oh, oh you're looking at a. <laughs> let the record show. This is looking at my notes. Well, we have Biceline, who was the. Several generation of bice lines were basically in charge of Pocatello and created the wrong side of the tracks uh, rentals. I'm sure that's what he's saying. I mean, the speaker is a liberal uh, anti-racist who's who's upset at the segregation and who is grappling, which is why we keep coming back to this thousands of years lyricism is grappling with the consequences of realizing that his good friend can't, in Pocatello can't even stay with him. My wife was telling me, she thought that when he says, I was hurt to discover he had come to what I thought was my town and my fair country, that you know, we we're trying to determine the degrees of irony in that line. And, you know, because at that point, there's no way Dorn grew up in the Depression dirt poor. And so he, there's no way he believes in, you know, the American dream or whatever, whatever it was in 1965. There's no way he's not conscious of all the rifts, the economic rifts and racial rifts and social rifts. But it's interesting that he kind of, that line to what I thought was my town and my fair country is kind of, that's what I mean. I can't tell the, the level of irony 
Did he really think, because he had been in Pocatello for a few years, did he really think that it was a fair town? And, there, you know, fair meaning not just in that kind of Shakespearean, oh, my fair sir, but fair as an equal? Did mm-hmm. he think that or not? Also, I mean, his voice quality is so interesting. I wish I, wish, um, I had more information about his voice because this is actually the first time I've ever heard him read. Um, but I was so surprised by the sort of lilting and it sounds ironic, but then this is a person who, the you know, the American Western accent of the middle 60s is not something that I hear <laughs> frequently. So yeah. let's listen to those couple of lines. Um, and uh, we'll start with Sophia and go around. Just say what you think, whether you hear irony in that voice. Uh, let's hear it from I was hurt all the way down to how many thousands years. I was hurt to discover he had come to what I thought was my town in my fair country three days before. I had thought he would stay with me. How many thousand years too late now is that desire? How long will the urge to be remain? Sophia, what tone do you hear there? I'm trying to figure it out, actually. Um, It's so, like, breathy, kind of, and so airy in a way that... I don't know. In a way, it being like almost so breathy and emphatic makes me like it's possible, I feel like, to interpret it as irony. But I mean, I don't know. In my mind, I'm comparing it to sort of a later Dorn. And and the it's a very different style. When you, when you listen to the recordings on Penn Sound from anything from 1970 on, the Gunslinger stuff, his tone, I mean, his writing has changed for Gunslinger. But it's still, the heart of it is still here. And so that tone is, and all the pre-stuff from the early 60s, is there's a softness to it, which is, like you said, it's slightly, it's deceptive. It's, it's a strange, it's a strange softness. Desire. <laughs> yeah, and but he, but when, but he also, I really think he's such a master musician. Uh, I mean, you know, in terms of how he reads and the music of his words. If I stipulate that that's the how many thousand years line is overwriting and overdramatic, given that the hurt of segregation is not really felt primarily by the speaker, so he's he's really being super sympathetic. I. Disagree. Okay, cool. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think the poem, I, I don't think it's overwriting. I, I think it's an alternative geography, right? So, so if the poem sort of proposes that um, there's a kind of geographic time that might be actually more important in some ways than, you know, the sort of local problem of segregation, then, um, it. then it's not overwriting. Then it's um, an argument. Um, with McLucas, with other people, um, and maybe with himself. I mean, and that's why the Union Pacific and not something else, right? This thing that sort of like charges through. The Union Pacific finishes the job of Manifest Destiny. It connects the country. It makes the United States commercially viable. It makes Pocatello a town, and that comes with there being another side, the wrong side of the track. And that is the beginning of the end of what he might consider, I'm coming around to your view, he might consider the true ancientness of the landscape, which doesn't have such divisions. And which is Dorn's medier. His, like his that's when he learned topic. at Black Mountain, to, to consider the geography of a place and speak from that and uh, identify that and investigate that. And then 
you know, when you start from there, then you kind of lose uh, your lyrical, your eye. It's a way to distance yourself from the eye. So let's, I mean, in our printing in the collected poems, it turns out that when the poem turns to more general topics or other kinds of referentiality, it's on the other page. So it seems it seems that the new a new set of references pushes the story. So it's, it almost operates as a little short story. We have this particular hurt, this particular example of segregation, and now we seem to have larger, more um, analogy-making politics. So let me open it up. Anybody want to just throw out onto the table some of these references that we can work with? Simone, you want to start? Sure. I mean, we could start with the very last lines of the poem, which sort of wrap up, you know, in like almost a, you know, it's like a little couplet in four lines. You talk of color, but I'm talking about cosmological America. Who would you be there? Uh, you could be Leroy. It could be Leroy. It could be you and me. It could be um, anybody who's be a generic you. A generic hey, you. Hey, you talk about color. Yeah. You talk color. You. Mm-hmm. Or the, the <laughs> national discussion. At the, the national time. discussion. Andrew, uh, throw out another reference that seems interesting to you. Well, I like the the after uh, the Cheyenne cutoff, the right of way they called it, and it still runs that way. We have to talk about what the right of way meant in in the. I mean, I, I'm ready to do it, but please, sure, you do it. Well, <laughs> you know, as far as I can tell, you know, they actually called when the train got to uh, Cheyenne. I guess it headed up. I actually don't know the geography of what he's talking about. So I guess when it hit Cheyenne, it went up towards Denver and then... Oh, so you're thinking of right away as a direction. Well, they Uh, called it that. And so, but that's useful. You know, that becomes, you know, the right of way. Like, so the right of Commodore Vanderbilt, the right of Harriman, their right of way to exploit, you know, nature and people and whatever they wanted to. Right away was also land grab. Yeah. It was a way for the United States to encourage this construction the railroad companies, and they got right away, they got land on either side of the tracks. They took land. Um, so there's at least a pun there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Sophia, another reference that interests you? Yeah. Um, I'm curious about the surgery of Harriman and the old isolator, that ambassador at large. Let's try to together put together the Harriman reference. What would the old isolator be? It's hard, well, to, it, hard to know. If he's, if, you know... If Harriman, I can't remember, I Googled it a while ago, but if he's one of the ones who uh, put a lot of money into the, into the Union Pacific or actually into a, a railroad in upstate New York that became something else, then him being the old isolator is, you know, he's the architect of that split, the sundering. He's the architect of, segregation. of, of, of it's, uh, the segregation, the wrong side of the tracks. Mm-hmm. Sophia, what interested you about, about that? Well, I... I kind of, I mean, I'm actually so grateful for this conversation that we're having because it's kind of totally changing the way that I had read this um, up until like an hour ago when I lost Reddit. So I, which is kind of why my whole perception of it is all really like kind of shifting and and exploding right now, which is kind of why I'm also feeling a little bit inarticulate when it comes to um, explaining what I'm thinking. I, I think I was like really naive when I read it at first and kind of thought... Well, just the, I mean, I just know of Dorn in the context of kind of like gay stuff and like AIDS stuff and stuff like that. And so, and he wasn't like kind of 
the friendliest or the chillest guy in that aspect. And and so I, I guess I carried that along with me and, and reading this then kind of zoomed in on, 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 you know, some terms that I'm now realizing are kind of more kind of weren't intended the same way that I, I mean, I, I had kind of read it with a lot of irony the way that Andrew was saying and that whole opening stanza with the bright white shirt and incorial smile. I was like, oh, what's this about? And incorial is quite a word, isn't I it? I thought that was, yeah, so, that, that, so that, bear that. with me while I'm kind yeah. of like, my mind is like kind of expanding Well, I mean, I think now. you're picking out Harriman is, a f- is really appropriate to any of us who have, who are confused by Dorn's strategies. Um, because Harriman is a combination of two Harrimans. It's got to be. E.H. Harriman was the railroad baron of the Harrimans. But Averill Harriman, is the name that's more familiar to people, was ambassador at large under JFK, who was really, in a way, the architect of Vietnam policy in, in the early days. And so what we have here is 1960s politics, but he's, in almost a Poundian way, the way, you know, cyclonic history, just merging these jerks, big, powerful Harriman jerks, E.H., who made all this, who helped make all this segregation possible, and Averill, who is the isolator, literally, probably during the 30s, was the, he was the Wall Street connection to Nazi investments. Averill Harriman was, and he was an isolator, as in isolationist. So Dorn is really expanding the canvas of 60s politics here. I mean, I, I really like that he's doing that, but I fully understand how that is a buried reference. I'm just really liking the sort of like the, the nature of the political poem that's coming out in our discussion, like mm. the, the way that, you know, Dorn is a figure for us in American poetry who, you know, is maligned in certain ways as, you know, a sexist and, you know, ignorant in so many important ways. And kind of a cowboy ways, type. And a cowboy type. But... Um, you can be many things at once. And as a poet, you know, the the sort of impulse to compress, you know, the sort of many possibilities of politics and life um, makes it really clear that, I mean, this is not, this is not a person who is apolitical. So it's not, it's not as if we're working with somebody who, whose life and work um, is, should surprise us. As you know, someone who's able to 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 make a poem like this, but I'm surprised even as I read it now and talk about it that um, that the political poem can do this and be in some ways on the surface so um, so kind of common, right? In its in its referentiality and in its um, and maybe even in that memory of McLucas yeah, coming to town, which yeah. is sort of a simple. thing. It seems trite in a certain way, and it's not. It's not. So let's let's the four of us try to say or piece together together as we've been doing the way in which the politics widens out. In other words, what's politically at stake? We know what's at stake in the story of his friend uh, dealing with segregation in a way that surprises the. Um, you know, anti-segregationist speaker. We know that. But the second half of the poem is making some large claims. Can we just sort of riff on that and try to understand what is being said? I, I want to go back to the the gall. So before he really, like, blows the poem up, he actually does this, like, 
really tightening thing where that he, little lyric yeah the rustic piece. spades what is the, that it's it's almost like minstrelsy spades yeah really are they the rustic spades, spades at the Jim, Jim Dandy, Dandy Club Jim Dandy, took yeah. his money like the sea winds What's lift going the there? feathers of a gull. I don't know. Maybe he's doing a little bit of shuffle. It's a little song. Yeah, I, and I and and I think it's both really beautiful and surprising, and also um, incredibly racially complex as a performance. The rustic spades at the Jim Dandy Club took his money like the sea wind lifts feathers of a gull. What I actually think is that he might have lifted that because I read when he was in Chicago that he was really into a, a, a black writer called uh, Iceberg Slim who did a lot of oh yeah yeah like uh, <laughs> you know you know inner city style uh, uh, detective stuff and real gritty stuff and really like great writing pimp yeah <laughs> and, and, and uh, not to put too fine a point <laughs> and I think this is you know this no there's the pimp but he was <laughs> Yeah, and he was, <laughs> and Dorn was reading that stuff, and I wonder if this was like a little lift from there. So we didn't do anything with Ishmaelite, and the summer firebombs of Chicago. Well, we I have to put that into the record here. I thought that was my first thought was that it was the Democratic Convention, but then I thought if sixty-eight, yeah, then I was like, oh, we're wrong about that. Well, I think the poem is written in sixty-seven, so we are talking about probably mid-60s riots. I mean, Fred Hampton had shot in 1969, Black Panther, so that's not there. But it seems to me that there's something going on with a grand analogy that may or may not work between the with the reference of Harriman. I'll put it out there, and then you guys can do whatever you want with it. Um, we seem to have a ratio of E.H. Harriman is to the railroad-enforced segregation that McLucas experiences and that the and that upsets the speaker back in 65. So E.H. Harriman, the, the railroad baron, is to this segregation experience as Averill Harriman, the son, is to Nazi-supported isolationism. The Harriman family, like, appreciate my saying that, but, uh, you know, questionable isolationism of the 30s and Kennedy's runaway. They actually didn't tell Kennedy about their whole plans for Vietnam as ambassador at large, involved in the DM murder, the, the coup and the murder CIA uh, set up, so that this is a classic 19, to me, classic 1960s opening out. The society that has is built upon segregation created by robber barons is literally the, um, the inheritance of that is literally a world of uh, of Vietnam's and Chicago firebombing as a result of the radicalization of people, including African-Americans. So that's the Ishmaelite becomes, say something about the Ishmaelite connection. I don't know. I'm ready to hear it. Okay. Well, he's, <laughs> You're you know, working. This, I, this reading I, is so good. I, I want to hear it. Ishmaelite sounds. Ishmaelites, it's uh, black Muslims of Chicago, probably. Hmm. Or he's the... Or is it the speaker? Because Ishmael's, you know, the one who's the been cast out. He gets cast out. Uh, so oh, that, yeah. that could be Dorn as well, who's looking at things from the outsider point of view, which I think he did his entire time. Well, we have a sanctuary along the UP. We have a rare jailbird. 
and we have the cast out family, then we have the 60s. And it is, in my favorite line, the same scar tissue. This is the, this mm. is the result of segregation and of building this continent. And as you said, the two Harrimans, you know, each side of the shining double knife. It's a double-edged knife. Okay, so let's go back to the last stanza Simone mentioned before, before we get final words and try to wrap this up. You talk of color. Oh, cosmological America, how well and with what geometry you teach your citizens. Let's go around. Everybody say something about that. Simone, back to you first. I just love the cosmological America as as a sort of geographic definition of American time. Um, thinking about America and not as something that's a 300-year a game, but a game that's thousands and thousands of years that we're still seeing being formed. It's a terraforming problem. It's a terraforming problem that's inherited generation after generation. We can look forward. We can look back. I mean, I think that view of American life and American literature is the appropriate one. Cool. That's super Andrew? cool because that semi, you know, whether it does or not, but it could reference the thousand years late now that he's thinking It seems thinking to of. be a restatement of yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what I like about that last thing is I, I like that geometry is all of a sudden placed as something that's, um, you know, not this benign thing you do with compasses and things when you're 10 years old at school, but geometry is now, you know, in the hands of the rich and powerful. It's this terrible thing. It's a terrible tool. No, I also picked up on the geometry. I thought that was, that kind of, to me, was, like, super interesting. Um, I may have misread that a minute ago and said, you teach your children. Did I say children? Citizens. citizens. And with what geometry you teach your citizens. This is very um, didactic suddenly, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm kind of thinking through this all in real real time, so I hope I don't say That's anything regrettable. <laughs> but I kind of, fi- I don't know. If it's I think... really regrettable, we'll cut it out. Okay. <laughs> Um, I kind of read the whole poem with a little bit of a didactic lens, I feel. So, uh, so it didn't kind of surprise me so much at the end, um, that extra punch that he... Mm-hmm. Does he pull it off? I think Simone is suggesting that he pulls it off with that tone. Oh, cosmological America. There's something a little beat about that almost. Um... And I think Sophia's thinking maybe he doesn't quite pull it off. Did I just? No, I definitely mistake? have no have no judgment call on it. Um, I, it's kind of just my opinion that I. Um, but then I'm like learning so much about it in the moment that um, that I feel is getting re- it's reframing my my reading of it. I yeah. Fantastic poem talk at its best. Okay, so <laughs> let's go around and. Uh, Get just final thoughts on this because there's so much more we could have said about it. Um, so, Andrew, first, anything at all, a, a phrase, a line, a point you wanted to make, a reference? I think this is a great poem because for Dorn because it's, in the, it's, it's a pivot poem uh, between his earlier lyrical work, which almost, you know, we could actually, if we were going to do that, we'd say the, the left-hand side of our page is that early lyrical Dorn, and the voice that he reads in is that earlier or lyrical Dorn, and then the right-hand side of the page is kind of where he's going a bit. Um, he's about to go into uh, 
a bunch of poems that turn, end up becoming Gunslinger. In fact, the first poem of Gunslinger is in North Atlantic Turbine, that book. So he's about to go into this world where he's going to mash up Elizabethan English and hipster talk and news reports and, you know, um, you mean in science. Gunslinger. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and I'd put all that stuff together, you know, and make it cohere. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sophia, final thought? Yeah, could my final thought be a question? Yes, please. Could I ask Andrew why he picked this poem? I think I picked it. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I didn't want to pick this poem, but... Well, it's not I didn't want to pick it, but... Wait a minute, I are picked, you really saying that I picked now? Dorn. No, I, I picked <laughs> On Dorn. The air, you're saying you didn't want this poem? No, no. Al and I went back and forth. For a long time. For a long time on which one. And then eventually I was like, Al, you pick. I, I, I just you know. don't think Gunslinger is possible for poem talk. Here we had, it, you, shall I defend my choice? Please. Here we had a poem. <laughs> I think it's a great poem. It's really at the verge of the later Dorn. It's pre-Gunslinger, as you've said a couple times. And it is grappling with 60s politics coming from race, which seemed to me really fascinating to see Dorn have to deal with that. And, I, and it's clear that the speaker is very, very um, empathetic and supportive of his friend, of both Leroy's, Leroy and Leroy. Um, and the question is, how well does he pull that off, that, that sympathy? And I think, I think that that concern gets, this is my final word, I guess, gets addressed in the later part of the poem. The first part of the poem is an anecdote that makes me just a little queasy. But the second part of the poem is 60s politics in a way that gets me want, makes me want to go back there and draw these connections between the old Harriman who set up this mess and the new Harriman that shipped the same people over uh, to Vietnam to die for what? On the same scar. Yeah. So did, in your opinion, we... it, was, it was successful in that sense? Or he pulled know. it off? Was that your, that your question? Is, is it successful? No, it was no. My 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 question was why, why did Andrew why did Andrew pick this poem? Yeah, poem yeah. But now, yeah, yeah. now I know. <laughs> really fair. That I won't question. get an answer to that. Simone, would you have picked this poem? I would have wanted to talk about Gunslinger, probably, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I um, I was going to say that for last words, I was going to say that I wanted to say something about the Blue Beach, but now oh, I want to talk great. about what Al just said. We'll do both. Okay. No, let's do that. Um, So the Blue Beach is a complete, like, weird thing in the middle of the poem, Um, almost like a whale. And there's a whale in the middle. of the I poem. think there's a whale in the middle of the poem, and it's I Can I you stopped quote on the it. Lines? Sure, even through the heart of the Blue Beach, hard as it is. There's no beaches in Pocatello. B e e, and I um I was sort of confused by it's this the presence of this line and me too didn't quite know what to make of it i and but but then um when i was much more interested frankly in what you were saying about whether or not the poem was successful um as a kind of um can can it be redeemed as a political poem and i i actually think you know the question of whether or not the sort of the locality the question of whether you know it's a it's a lyric question, you know, is this, is the, is the lyric I going to survive the sixties? Is, um, is race going to dominate, you know, thinking and ideology forever? 
Including um, foreign policy. Including foreign policy and the military. Exactly. Is the Cold War going to be completely overtaken by questions of racial politics that are essentially local in the minds of, I think, some radical Americans? Um, And that, like, continues to dominate thinking about American poetry in an important way. And I think, you know, it's really important to look at the poem as kind of containing all the seeds of... Um, fighting about, you know, what the status of race relations in the United States is now and forevermore. And poetry famously has its own geometry. It is formally a geometry. And what are we teaching our citizens? You know, what, what, is, what is the American political poem going to accomplish if it can't broadly stretch way out and make these grand, outrageous analogies? That's why Harriman is so key because it's not so outrageous to think about E.H. and his railroad baronism leading directly to his son. It's, it's a patriarchy of railroad barons who formulate our foreign policy, and race is the key question. Is that the blue beach? What do you think? I don't know. Totally Somebody who knows railroads is going to say, yeah, oh, well, they us. use this special tree, the blue beach, <laughs> that yeah. hard, hard to make the To make the ties. To, to, to make, make the, the ties. ties. Yeah. It's so something about, about railroad ties. But... Yeah. Okay. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise. It's a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. So who wants to start to recommend something? I actually just want to shout out this journal in Buffalo that um, is new, this audio journal, audio only, um, called Itham, which um, is a call and response situation. Its first issue has just come out. I happen to be included in it, but that is not why I'm shouting it out. I just like the concept so much, and I like the audio only so much. Um, Y-T-H, et cetera. That's great. Great recommendation. Andrew, gather some paradise. I guess two times a week I go visit Tom Clark Blogspot, uh, who is a friend of Doran's, and uh, he puts together it's uh, photographs and um, poems. You know, they could be super current poems, but they, they could be, you know, like Samuel Johnson. And uh, the photographs that he puts up there are... Uh, highly political and and uh, about current crises i mean is one of the main things we see is a, a lot of uh photographs of uh gaza and he he's just a, a highly political poet and writer and and this is a great example of what poetry can do like this type of political poetry can do fantastic and you you can get also tom clark sends out a sort of regular email every once in a while and i believe california northern california maybe i think so yeah yeah great tom clark Sophia, gather some paradise. Yeah, I would love to gather paradise, Al. Okay. Um, I wanted to shout out um, another podcast, another poetry podcast called IRL. Um, Ben Fama and Monica McClure run it. It's a weekly podcast that just started recently. Um, And um, it's very good fun. In real life. Yeah, but right, but that's the joke. That's the joke because it's a podcast. Because it's a podcast. Um, it started out as a, as an in real life series actually though, with two, with two poets at a time. Anyway, I super strongly recommend it. And, um. Is it easy to find? Yeah. And. I guess just. I mean, but it's cool. Googling in real life is likely to get you a lot of hits though. Yeah, no, but so that's, so you should Google IRL Ben Fama, Monica McClure. Good. It's on SoundCloud and I figure 
If you're listening to one poetry podcast, why not amass a couple? Absolutely. Sounds like a great idea. Thank you. Um, my Gathering Paradise is Sophia Lafraga. So you you wanted to you were excited about Gathering Paradise. I'm gathering your parodies will work. Um, <laughs> oh my I just God. want to point out that, um, as you well know, Sophia, in Jacket 2, uh, I co-edited a series of so-called first readings, and we had five people write about Sophia's piece, which we'll describe in a second, which is called Waiting For, and it's basically a, a text exchange, um, sometimes, I think, best seen in the video, only seen in the video, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the only way to get it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I we start. I started performing it. And you have kind performed of, it, right? And, so there's YouTube talking it in real time and talking in real time, in real time, um, and it's it's terrific. And can we say "Waiting for" is a a a text age play on Beckett? What are we waiting for? Yeah, that TBD. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Well, that's all the uh, hearing the Supremes we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Andrew Whiteman, coming all the way from Canada, Sophia Lafraga, and Simone White, coming both of you from New York, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardiner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardiner. Next time on Poem Talk, I'll be taking the show on the road to Harvard University in Boston, where I'll be joined by Christina Davis, Raphael Campo, and Lisa New to talk about Robert Lowell's much-anthologized poem, Skunk Hour. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.